name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. It's good to have everybody back and getting right back into Romans. We are now starting chapter 8, okay? And this is a tough chapter. It's a beautiful chapter and it's full of theology, but there's a lot to it. And the following chapter is not much easier as well. <laughs> so there's a lot to unpack here. We're going to take our time, but we will also try to move as quickly or as efficiently as possible. Okay, so with that being said, we're going to dive right into it. Romans chapter 8. And I think we can try to just take the first eight verses. Okay, so Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 8. Who can read that for us? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That he, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, <clears throat> set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is no subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Did you say one through eight, right? Yeah, just until eight. Okay. So... Thank you for reading for us. Let's all just take a moment to read it on our own personally, and then we'll talk about it all together. All right, so there's a lot to unpack here. It's a dense little section, but we'll take it step by step. So the very beginning of this chapter, St. Paul talks about how there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Right? Because again, like we spoke about before, it's Christ who justifies us, who gives us a new life. Right? So, in as much as our life is in Christ, and in as much as we are abiding by His Word, then we are walking, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We are justified by this new life in the Spirit. Okay? So, I'm not going to dwell on that concept because we already covered it but 
he gets into a whole lot of theology about how the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And what the law couldn't do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Alright? That's what I want to meditate on for a little bit before we move on. What does it mean for Him to say that he condemned sin in the flesh and that God did so by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. What do you take from that? Thank is God through Jesus Christ. Okay, absolutely. It's through Christ, right? But yeah. what, what about this point of assuming the likeness of sinful flesh Um, that Christ did take on our humanity Um, like the whole Christ is like his essence is of two essences he is fully human and he is fully God and so our human nature is corrupt but since he's God he doesn't sin very good. Okay. So that was a lot right there. And, and I think Hope put it in a perfect way. So we think of Christ and the way that the fathers explain Christology through this double consubstantiality, right? So he's consubstantial or with the same substance as the father of, of the same nature as the father. And also of the same nature with humanity. Okay? So, consubstantial with the Father and consubstantial with humanity. Alright? So, this means that He assumed our nature. Okay? So, St. Gregory Benazianzen says, He was actually subject as a slave to flesh, to birth, and to our human experience for our liberation. Held captive as we are by sin... He was subject to all that he saved. Right? So he was subject to the same experience of our broken humanity. That's why he felt pain. That's why he felt anxiety and stress to the extent that he was sweating blood while he was praying at Gethsemane. That he wept. He felt all of these human emotions. All of the pain and the suffering. That's a product of our broken nature. That's what sin brought into the world, right? Adam and Eve didn't know what pain and suffering was like prior to the fall, right? So Christ assumed the fallen condition of humanity so that He can identify with us and condemn sin in the very same flesh that fell into sin. Okay? So, St. John Chrysostom, when he's commenting on St. Paul's words that he condemned sin in the flesh, says that it's as if he had said that he had convicted it of great sin and then condemned it. So he convicted sin and condemned sin. So here's The irony behind it. And then he goes on to say, So you see, it is sin that gets condemned. Do not therefore suppose that his flesh was of a different kind. Alright? So, this is like the most fundamental principle when it comes to our Christology and how we are saved by the work of Christ. Because he assumed our fallen nature. Okay? And just like St. Gregory of Nazianzus says, what is not assumed is not redeemed. So if Christ did not assume the very same mind, the very same heart, the very same body, 
the very same physical limitations such as hunger and thirst and the need for sleep and all of that, then he really didn't save my mind and my heart and my body. Okay? So he took on the very same attributes of our fallen humanity so that he could transform it. Okay? My favorite quote by St. Cyril of Alexandria is that he meditates on how Christ transformed our nature by assuming our fallen humanity. So he says, He wept in a human manner in order to suppress your tears. He experienced fear in virtue of the economy, at times allowing his flesh to feel what is proper to it in order to fill us with courage. He slept in order that you might learn not to sleep in times of temptation, but rather to apply yourself to prayer. Offering his life as a model of saintly existence to be used by earthly beings, he took on the weaknesses of humanity and what was his purpose in doing this? That we might truly believe that he became man, although he remained what he was, namely God. Okay? So, this was the very purpose of it. That we can identify with the humanity of Christ and that through his work, we receive this renewed nature, this new creation, because he condemned sin in the flesh. And don't think of it when St. Paul says, in verse 3, that he took on the likeness of sinful flesh, as if likeness just implies a resemblance. It's not just a resemblance. You know, every Halloween we all dress up and we imitate a different figure, right? You might dress up and you imitate a singer or a music artist, right? Somebody will dress up as, I don't know, like Michael Jackson, right? So you look like Michael Jackson, but you're not actually Michael Jackson, right? You can have the appearance of that likeness, right? But what St. Paul is saying here isn't just an appearance, isn't just a resemblance, It's the reality of assuming our humanity. Okay? And this is literally what the the Greek is intended to imply when you look at the text in its original form. So, Father Lawrence Farley comments on this specific passage. He says, The incarnate Christ is said here to have been in the likeness of sinful flesh. The word likeness here doesn't mean only approximately resembling, so as to stress the difference of one thing from another. Rather, what is stressed is the exact identity between two things. And then he references that, he says, use See the use of this word in Philippians 2.7, how Christ is in the likeness of men, in that he is a man. And he goes on to say, what St. Paul means here is that Christ came as one of us. We sinful men are a flesh, weak, transient, mortal, and he fully shares this humanity. Okay, Of course, it doesn't mean that he falls into the same sins, because... He did not sin at all, right? But he assumes the same nature so that he can refine it, transform it, and renew it. Okay? Any thoughts or questions there? I know there's a lot there, so speak your mind. I had one, um, you 
you had mentioned the quote by St. Gregory of Nazianz is, he convicted sin and he condemned sin. I understand condemning sin in that he put, like, he beat death with death, or he beat sin through death. But what do you, conviction to me is sort of like this feeling that you get almost like it can lead to repentance or it can lead to a transformation. So how does that work? That's a great question. And that is typically how we understand the concept of conviction or feeling convicted. But he's applying this concept in the sense of like a convict, someone who is convicted of a crime, someone who is guilty. So sin is found guilty. It has no longer any effect on humanity. Like it doesn't have the upper hand anymore. It's the criminal that's going to get locked up, imprisoned, and put to death. Right. So that's how he's relaying this concept. It's convicted in the sense of it's found guilty, eliminated. That's a very good question, Hope. All right, we're still going to cover a little bit more of this section, but I want to make sure that the Christology here is, is clear because it's a very important concept. Like this is actually like the very core of my whole thesis paper. <laughs> so like I dedicated my whole master's in theology to work on this specific concept. And the fathers have written books on it. And you could spend your whole life studying what this really means and the implications that it, this has on our spiritual life. It's a very big, profound, powerful topic. Okay, But I think for now, I, 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 I think that's enough to at least scratch the surface and to understand what it means. So he goes on to say, in the last three verses or so, in the section that we just read, that there is this righteous requirement, like that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then he goes into this dichotomy of the spirit and the flesh. We spoke a little bit about this before, right? And he says that those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. All right? Now, we know what the works of the flesh produce which is death. But what's the product of the Spirit, like the mind of the Spirit? Life. Life. Life and what? There's one more thing. Eternal life. You're right. That, that's absolutely the case. But he adds one more quality. He says, to be spiritually minded is life and... Look at verse 6, the very end. Say that one more time. I didn't catch it. Peace. Perfect. Life and peace. This is the fruit of a spiritual mind. You have an internal peace. And the saints had this type of internal peace even when their environment was chaotic, even when there was a lot of tension, even when there was no peace at all around them. Right? But when the Spirit is alive and active, we find life and peace. Okay? And we have the exact opposite whenever our mind is carnal or we are living according to the flesh. There is death and distortion, fragmentation, divisions. 
hostility. Whenever our mind is scattered, we're fragmented, and our thoughts are all over the place, there's a lot of chaos within our mind, that's the antithesis of peace. The lack of peace is a fragmented mind, a mind that has no harmony, that is divided, right? Separated from God, okay? When the presence of the Spirit is active and working within our mind, our thoughts are coherent, are in harmony with our family. You have peace with your spouse, you have peace with your children, you have peace with the people around you. But it all starts whenever your mind is collected, whenever your mind is centered in God. We always talk about how the Jesus prayer centers our mind and our heart as one unit centered in Christ. Okay? And if that peace is there, it will radiate. And we all know what it looks like. We all know when we see someone who is peaceful, not fragmented and scattered and thoughts all over the place and there's a lot of tension, always frustrated, has a short fuse, right? That doesn't radiate peace. It makes us even more stressed. <laughs> but like St. Sarah says, attain the spirit of peace and a thousand souls around you will be converted. So that peace radiates. Okay? And again, he goes on to say the exact opposite for those who are in the flesh. Right? There's a stark dichotomy. It's not like the both are close. They're on extreme opposite ends. One is life and peace. The other, he says, death. And, and he goes on to say, Enmity against God. And is it is it possible to please God with the mind of the flesh? No. No. It's impossible to please God. So he says in verse 8, So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if we're living by the flesh, always thinking about how we can satisfy our appetites, always thinking about how we can satisfy our need for entertainment, whatever it may be, then we will never please God. Okay? That's why fasting flesh, is so important. The flesh is weak, Abuna. The flesh is weak. But we fast so that we can strengthen the flesh. Right? And this is the irony behind the, the distorted version of fasting that we hear sometimes. We think that we fast in order to cripple the flesh or to weaken the flesh. No, but when we crucify the flesh, the flesh becomes spiritual because it is subjected to the spirit and we strengthen our bodies. We strengthen our flesh. That's the point of fasting. Right? Alright. So, let's go to just the next three verses. Verses 9, 10, and 11. It's a short little section, but there's a central theme right here. Who can read that for us? Just these three verses. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And in, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal 
bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Very good. Thank you for reading. Let's all take just a moment to read that one more time on our own. All right, so what do you think about this little section? What do you take from it? Uh, do we see ourselves in the flesh side or, you know what I mean? Or okay. the spirit side? Okay, so we ask ourselves where we fall, right? Whether we identify with the flesh or the spirit. That's a very good question we all have to ask ourselves. Hopefully, we can all say that we live by the Spirit, although there are certain areas in our life that are carnal and we need to work on that to offer our repentance and to, to crucify the flesh, right? Yeah. I have, I'm confused about uh, verse 10. Okay. Uh, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. If Christ is in us, how come the body is dead? Also, we don't think about the mortal... Uh... Because of the sin, actually. Yeah. Exactly. It's because of the sin, although he's going to talk about how Christ gives life to our mortal bodies. Right? Sin produces death, which reigned in our flesh, right? But the explanation to the question that you're asking comes in the very next verse. Okay, so if you look at verse 12, he says that he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay? So this goes to... Explain the heart of our hope. Because our hope is not just to leave our bodies whenever we depart from this world and and have salvation from our bodies. We don't think of our bodies in the Gnostic understanding. Remember how the Gnostics thought that the body is evil, all the physical world is bad. Right? But our salvation is not whenever we are liberated from the body, whenever we die and our soul and spirit leave the body. But where is the final victory? Well, we live by the Spirit in our time here on earth, right? But ultimately, the final victory in the very end. I think it's when, uh, when the body's purified. Like that when God reverts our nature, our bodily nature back to where it was supposed to be. Good. So when our bodies are restored, Right? This is the ultimate victory. This is the final victory. Right? Because remember, it was in the flesh that sin reigned. Right? So it's only fitting that the final triumph is fulfilled 
in the resurrection of the flesh. So I might die tomorrow and my soul and spirit depart from my body, but that's not the ultimate final victory. But in the second judgment, when this body rises from the dead and this body is restored, is the final triumph, the ultimate triumph. Okay? This is our ultimate hope. Okay? That's why he says, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Of course, through the Spirit, through His Spirit who dwells in you. Right? But we think of salvation holistically. Right? It's not just about the Spirit. But we are bodies and spirits. Just a couple of days ago, I spoke to you about fasting and how we need to fast with the body and the spirit. Right? So salvation is a product of the renewal of our minds, our spirits, our bodies, our whole being. Right? And the body is restored in the final judgment. That's, that's the hope that St. Paul is talking about here. Okay, any questions there before we jump into the next section? Alright, so who can read verses 12 to 17 for us? Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Awesome. I love this little passage. So take a moment to read it again on your own and then we'll talk about it. All right, so he starts out telling us that we are debtors. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. What does that mean? Debtors to what? And how so? Not to the flesh, but to the spirit. Yeah. Right? And that means if you're indebted to the spirit. If you are debtors to the spirit. You owe your life to the spirit. Right? If somebody does a big favor for you. And you say, I owe you a big debt. Right? I have to repay you. I owe you. I'm indebted to you. In the same way, 
we can say that we owe our life to the Spirit, to the spiritual path. We are indebted to live by the Spirit. Okay? So, how do we put to death the deeds of the flesh through the Spirit? How do we go about living according to the Spirit? Because he says, if you are indebted to the Spirit, if you're indebted to the life of the Spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the body. Right? Put away everything that is related to our desire, our lusts, our uh, earthly things in the world. Very good. That's it. That's the fundamental principle right there. I want to share with you how, how Origen explains this concept, okay? He says, A person puts to death the deeds of the flesh through the Spirit in the following manner. So he's going to explain how we can put to death the deeds of the flesh through the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, but hatred is a deed of the flesh. Therefore, hatred is put to death and extinguished through love. Okay, so he's going to go through this list of, of opposites. Okay? Exactly, this concept of replacing this, the deeds of the flesh with the spirit. So he says, the fruit of the spirit is love. Hatred is the deed of the flesh. Therefore, hatred is put to death and extinguished through love. And he's going to go on to say, Likewise, joy is the fruit of the Spirit, whereas the sorrow of this world, and he's referencing 2 Corinthians 7.10, which works death is a, dead, is a deed of the flesh. Therefore, this sorrow is extinguished when the joy of the Spirit is in us. Okay, So it's joy that extinguishes the sorrows of the flesh. Peace is a fruit of the Spirit. Dissension and discord are of the flesh. But surely discord can be put to death through peace. In a similar manner, the patience of the Spirit extinguishes the impatience of the flesh. The goodness and goodness destroys malice. And gentleness, ferocity, and self-control, immoderation. And chastity slays unchastity. Whosoever puts to death the deeds of the flesh through the Spirit in such a manner will live. Moreover, we need to realize that this putting to death of the deeds of the flesh should come through repentance, and it does not come suddenly, but gradually. That is so beautiful. Because he's making it as simple as possible. Instead of complicating it and talking about how we can eliminate the hatred in our life. He says, just work on cultivating your love. Right? Work on cultivating your mercy and your compassion to replace the malice. Right? So this is a process of repentance. Repentance produces a spiritual life. Okay? It's repentance that produces a spiritual life. And he tells us that for us to live by the Spirit, like for you didn't receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That means you're not just changing your mind, but you're returning to your Father. And this phrase, Abba Father, is not just like saying, Dad. It's not just Father, but Abba Father. It's a dear, intimate way of calling out to your Dad. 
like Papa, like a little child calling out to his father, Abba, Father. It's 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 a phrase of intimacy. So this process of repentance, returning to the life of the Spirit, is re- is like a child running back to his father. Like the best image I think of is whenever a two-year-old is playing and let's say it's a little boy that falls and scrapes his knees. He just starts crying, but immediately he just runs to his mom and dad. And he's saying, Baba, 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 I fell, I scratched my knee, whatever. Probably it will sound like, you know, it's the end of the world, even if it's a little scratch, but <laughs> it'll be the child running to his father. Okay? Like we are God's children. Absolutely. And the most beautiful part of identifying as children of God is that He calls us sons. The ones that are led by the Spirit of God, He says, these are sons of God. Why doesn't He say sons and daughters? Is this just like, I don't know, uh, a patriarchal statement? Like, no, St. Paul doesn't women. care about women? <laughs> There's children. <laughs> There's children, but he doesn't just say children. He says sons. Yes. There's a reason here. I think probably to reflect that Christ was the son. So in the same sense or in a similar sense. Uh, were equated. Very good. That's it right there. Theologically, we are identifying with Christ. Okay? And we know that it's the firstborn son that receives the inheritance. Not the daughter, but the son. Right? So, what St. Paul is saying, you identify with the heritage that the son receives, whether you're a male or a female. You identify as a son because you inherit everything that belongs to God, regardless of your gender. Okay? And in Galatians, he makes that clear. He says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, a slave or free, male or female, but all are one in Christ. So it's not about like, oh, like we need a feminist statement to fight for women, women's rights here. No, regardless of your gender, it's better to identify as a son of God because it's the son who inherits. Okay, now, if we think of the son of God, Christ himself, what did he inherit? Glory, well, that's the resurrection, the glory of the resurrection, but... If we share his suffering, we glorify as him. Very good. So, we share in the suffering and the glory of Christ, because this is what Christ endured. Okay? I want to share with you how Father Lawrence Farley puts it. He says, if we would be co-heirs of Christ, we must enter our inheritance as he did through suffering. So he entered that glory through what? Through the cross, through suffering. And he goes on to say, if we would be co-glorified in the age to come, then we must also co-suffer with him in this present age. We are said to co-suffer, some paxo, which is the Greek, through our suffering in the world, we share and have communion with our Lord's suffering on the cross. Indeed, the lot of the sons of God in this world is the cross. The lot of the sons of this world is the cross. Like, your inheritance 
is the cross. The world persecuted the Lord. The world persecuted the Lord, and it will persecute us. Only by steadfastly enduring this persecution and keeping the faith can we enter into our final and glorious inheritance. We will be co-glorified with Him. And the Greek is son doxaso. In that the very same glory with which Christ was glorified by the Father at His right hand is what He will share with us. And listen to this. This is the most beautiful part of His commentary here. It's not just that He will give us glory too, rather he will, rather we will be glorified with the very same glory of Christ. Here is theosis indeed. Okay? This is what we always mean when we're talking about becoming Christ. To suffer with Him and to be glorified with Him. That he says, we will be glorified with the very glory of Christ. Not just that Christ will give us glory, but we will share in His glory. There's a difference here. And I'm sure some of us have tasted that. Whenever we forgive those who offend us, whenever we go the extra mile for service, whenever we love our enemies, whenever we suffer, whenever we endure patiently with any offenses, when we carry the cross, we taste that glory. right? And I'm sure all of us can list a bunch of stories and our own personal experiences, but we always have to remember that. Because it's hard to remember the glory that God promises us when we're in the fire. <laughs> when we're in a fire, we're not thinking about anything other than how much the fire sucks. <laughs> right? right? Any thoughts or comments there before we jump into the next section? Well, it's, it's like suffering is present and the glory in the future. This is what it means, future glory. Well, that's a great question. I would say that we also experience the glory in the present time as well, because God gives us consolations, right? We feel the presence of God, right? We feel His comfort. We feel the joy, right? We feel the glory of the resurrection by the joy of Christ whenever we are patient with each other, whenever we forgive each other, whenever we love each other, when we serve each other. And the people that are serving and sacrificing the most always seem to be the most joyful in the present, in the moment. Even though there is a future glory that awaits us as well. So there is a present glory and a future glory that awaits us. The problem is the present glory is a product of God's providence. Sometimes we feel it and experience it and taste it. Sometimes it comes tomorrow. Sometimes it comes a year from now. Sometimes we don't experience it until a much later time. Yeah, thank you. Sure. Any other comments or questions there? Okay. But just remember that the suffering is the prerequisite for the glory. There is no theosis without kenosis. Okay? If we indeed suffer with Him, we may also be glorified together. Okay? Alright, let's go to verses 18 to 23. You can read that for us. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the Son of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it in hope. One more? Until 23, yes. Oh, uh, because of because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Very good. Now take a moment to read that one more time and we'll discuss this together and we'll conclude with this section today as well. All right, what do you think here? How does he start out this little section? Present suffering and the future glory. Good, good, good. So he's giving us like a word of encouragement, right? There's present suffering, but there's a future glory. And he goes to say that you can't even compare the two. You can't compare the suffering of this present time with the glory of the future. No matter how terrible the sufferings may be, it's for a limited time. Whereas the glory of heaven is for eternity. And this is a concept that's really hard to grasp. It's hard for us to conceptualize eternity. It's not even a percent of our life, right? Remember the story whenever St. Peshoi appeared to... No, it was the other way around. Whenever King Constantine appeared to St. Peshoi, And St. Peshoi committed his life to monasticism, to fast and to pray, to discipline his body. There's a lot of suffering in the monastic life, right? It's not a life of luxury and, and delicate food and all of the comfort that we have here in the world. So... King Constantine appeared to him after his departure. And we know that King Constantine was the one who legalized Christianity. Remember the Edict of Milan? It was, I think, in 313, something like that. I could be mistaken. But aside from the dates, he appeared to him and he was explaining to him how heaven was really like, okay? And St. Pasho is asking him, like, you know, it, it must be, like, glorious. And he's like, yes, there's no way to really describe it, right? But there's a special place for those who suffered and dedicated their life to asceticism and to prayer and to fasting. 
And he said that their place is even higher than my place in heaven. And Saint Bashar asked him, how, how is that possible? You're the one who legalized Christianity for the whole world. He says, because of their love for Christ and how much they endured the suffering of asceticism and prostrations and fasting and prayer to be alone with Christ the same way that Mary was just sitting at his feet while Martha was serving. She was just enjoying his company. She was listening to his words. She was abiding in him. Okay? He said that their glory in heaven was even greater than his glory. To the extent that he said, had I known the glory that is awaiting the monks and the monastics, I would have left my kingdom and dedicated my life to monasticism as well. He said, had I known, I would have been a monk like you. <laughs> so, this is the hope that St. Paul is stressing here. And he says, like, this is what we are eagerly awaiting. This is like the earnest expectation. Right? This is what this hope is all about in verse 20. Like the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That means, despite our limitations, we have hope in God. Okay, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. This is what will come in the second coming. The, the glory that will come in the second judgment. Okay, And we're groaning for this. In verse 22, we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Okay? So we work hard, we labor, we, we face all the suffering, and at the end of the tunnel, we have peace. Like when, when glory. We, we, we get all the glory later on. Of course. And not only later, but we <laughs> taste it here, right? We taste the... Don't you taste the glory in liturgy, right? Don't you yes. taste don't you taste the glory when you feel the peace of God in the service? When you taste the joy that comes in prayer, even though there's sacrifice, even though there's a lot of work in fasting and prayer, we taste that glory. We taste the peace, we taste the joy. Right? But it's only a small taste compared to what will come. So there is glory here and now, and and later. I have a little question, um, and it might be a tangent, but I'm going to ask anyways. Sure, sure. Um, do you think, regardless, or not regardless, like, let's say, let's assume that um, a person goes to heaven and they're at a specific place. Do you think there's going to be any regret that, hey, there's these people who are closer to God in life and so they're at a better place? Um, do you think even though you're in heaven, you're going to have any regrets? No, there's no way. And that's a very good question because we think about our place in heaven. And I think the story that I shared with you about King Constantine talking to St. Peshoy about his place in heaven might give us that impression, right? But he's only communicating that to stress the value of suffering for God. Not to say, I'm upset that I don't have a better place. Not to say that I regret the way I lived, right? Our joy will be full 
in the presence of God. We're not going to think about what we're lacking because God will complete our joy in heaven. Right? So, so in that sense, is it not safe to say that it's pointless to try to aim for a certain place in heaven? Or maybe not pointless, but, but like, what's the point of someone dedicating their whole life to the monastic life um, versus someone not doing that? Because well, at the end of the day, your joy is going to be complete regardless. Of course. The joy is complete but you have a closer relationship with God here and now and in the future age to come. I mean, even someone like St. Isaac the Syrian who believed in universal salvation was asked why would he discipline his body and fast and pray and offer all of these prostrations, all of this asceticism when he knows that God loves him and God will save him. And his answer was that he can experience the taste of God's goodness here and now, right? So that's why I, I don't like the concept of living our life just to get to heaven. Then we, we totally forget about experiencing God now. And, and then we end up living a very shallow life. Uh, let's, this is a great concept. I think we can dwell on it more if anybody else has any other questions as well. Any other comments? Write it down. Make a little note so that we can pick up with this specific concept next week because it's it's a very big, important topic. Okay, but I'm, I already kept you guys five minutes after, so I don't want to be rude and keep you any longer. But if anybody else has any comments or questions, make a little note so that I want to hear what your thoughts are next next week when we start as well. And... Uh, We'll pick up with that, okay?